Special Representative and Special Rapporteur Agnes Kalamad, we are honored to welcome you to the University of Pennsylvania Law School at a historic moment when the world is facing a global crisis. And now more than ever, in your own powerful words, you have said there is no curfew on human rights. So, Special Rapporteur Kalamar, we are delighted to host you at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. And we are also honoring three major bellwether events, which are, I think, cornerstones and landmarks of the human rights agenda. One is the 75th anniversary of the United Nations. Second is the 25th anniversary of the Beijing Platform of Action. And then the 20th anniversary of the Women, Peace and Security Agenda. Now for the first, the 75th anniversary of the United Nations has special significance to you because exactly 76 years ago, your grandfather was executed by the Nazis. So that was what propelled you in so many ways on your journey as a human rights advocate. And you are now the UN Special Rapporteur on Extrajudicial and Arbitrary Executions. You're also the Special Advisor to the President of Columbia University, President Belinger. And uh, you have said that even during a state of emergency, uh, that human rights do not get suspended. Although Article 19 on freedom of expression has very clear derogations, and those derogations apply in events uh, of national security, in public order, or due to public health or, or morals. So we are at a moment in time when we are facing such a derogation because of public health and national security issues. So what I want to do now is to engage in a quick conversation with you on some of these major uh, issues of emergency mm -hmm. and global crisis during sure. a, a public health uh, emergency and pandemic. So can sure. you first start by Special Rapporteur Kalama telling us something about your own journey as a human rights advocate and a human rights leader? Well, first of all, thank you uh, so much for inviting me and uh, uh, for such a wonderful uh, introduction, uh, kind, generous, and uh, at the same time, very uh, substantive. Uh, so my, my own journey, I think you hinted to it in the introduction when uh, you referred to, um, to my grandfather. Uh, it's not so much, of course, my grandfather per se, since I've uh, never met him, but it was more growing up um, uh, the importance of uh, giving, uh, the importance of fighting for justice, and the importance of truth-telling and memory. I think uh, all those elements were very central to the way I was raised. Uh, they um, attributed to my uh, personal journey uh, some forms of rituals, uh, such as the yearly gathering to uh, remember my grandfather and uh, other men, they were men, who uh, died with him uh, on the 15th of August. Um, 
So, uh, you know, I grew up in a family that was uh, committed to, um, to social justice. Uh, I grew up in a family uh, of women in particular who worked tirelessly for uh, social justice, mostly as uh, volunteers, um, and who gave a lot of their own uh, time and, and energy to, to those causes. So, you know, my, my, my personal commitment to human rights is very much a form of respect for where I'm coming from, respect for my family, respect for my roots, um, and my personal uh, commitment, uh, my um, absolute distaste for, for injustice, uh, the anger that can sometimes uh, take hold of me when I witness or when I hear or when I read uh, acts of cruelty and, and injustice which um, we should never uh, have to report upon. So that's for my personal journey. That's such an inspiring story and narrative, Special Rapporteur Kalamad, and that I know is what motivates you every single moment of your journey, because you have spoken to the fact that you yourself, that you yourself have received death threats, but you have been unfettered and you have been emboldened by all of those threats. And in your own intrepid journey, you have been just one singularly focused on the protection of human rights of all persons. Yeah. And uh, this particular moment is so important. And Absolutely. as you know, uh, human rights are universal, non-derogable, inextricably interlinked. And mm. those two uh, uh, three pillars on which the human rights framework is built on, the universality, non-derogability, and inextricably interlinked nature, to some extent comes into tension at this moment because some of those rights, we see a derogation of some of those rights. And we also see yeah. that despite the fact that human rights are interlinked, you've seen that of the virus, I'm afraid of dying of hunger. Absolutely. And you have really amplified those voices. So can you speak yeah. of that moment of tension at sure. this moment in history? Sure. I mean, you know, I, I think we are um, every day discovering the, uh, the meaning of that pandemic from a human rights standpoint. What it means, um, of course, for the people, uh, what it means more broadly for the human rights project. Um, and, um, you know, one of the questions I often ask myself is, what's the historical meaning of the moment we're living. Could such a pandemic have happened in, you know, at any other time of um, of the way of, of our world, uh, of our history? You know, why now? Why now? I don't have a, a lot of answers. I have a few, uh, but I think we first need to acknowledge the historical characteristics of the pandemic. It's not an accident. At least I do not believe it is an accident. Yes, of course, whatever happened in this uh, market in, uh, in Wuhan is an accident, but everything else is not. 
Um, so if it's not accidental, it's historical in many ways. And interrogating the historical meaning of the pandemic, I think, is something that we, uh, particularly researchers and academics, should really uh, reflect upon. With regard to the immediacy of the pandemic, as you pointed out, uh, the first uh, aspect that uh, uh, struck me as a special reporter on the right to life is the fact that in many ways uh, the response of the governments have been driven by uh, an attempt to minimize the loss uh, of life. And I'm always mindful of that. Um, I'm mindful of the, the fact that I believe that many governments around the world are indeed committed to minimizing uh, the risk to life that the pandemic represents. But in the process of doing so, uh, we are witnessing increasingly at the moment uh, measures being taken which are for many people around the world a graver a more serious risk to their lives than the pandemic itself. You, you know, uh, as I have asked repeatedly um, since it started, you know, how do you uh, stay home when you do not have a home? How do you uh, feed your family when you are dependent on your daily labor and daily wage? Uh, how do you remain at home when home is uh, the symbol and the location of violence? All of those questions should have been at the forefront of the reflection, driving governments when they came up with their policies to answer uh, to uh, uh, the coronavirus. But I think in many situations, they did not. Those questions just dropped off. Uh, and while some governments now are trying to pick them up, I think um, a great deal, a great number of governments are not doing so. Uh, you mentioned derogation. And yes, indeed, under the um, uh, human rights treaties, under the ICCPR, some rights can be derogated although not the right to life and not the right to be free from torture. Those are non-derogable rights. Under the UDHR, some rights can be limited, but again, um, not, uh, you know, not, not the rights that I am concerned with. And derogations must be activated under the uh, International uh, Covenant in order to be meaningful. At the moment, only a few number of uh, countries have actually gone through the process of activating um, their derogation. And that's, um, I think, something that we need to remind governments that if they are going to go through the process of derogating from their obligation, then they need to do that in a way which is formally recognized. And too few governments have done so uh, at the moment. Freedom of movement can be um, hampered somewhat in uh, a situation such as the one we are confronting, but not to the extent that it uh, uh, means that people are going to starve, not to the extent that it means uh, women are going to be beaten to death by, um, by their husband or kids violated 
um, by, by their parents. So derogations, of course, but, you know, within uh, uh, premises that recognize that vulnerable groups, groups living in poverty, people who live, who are homeless, um, uh, families who, uh, who have been uh, uh, the uh, victims of violence, uh, minorities who uh, live in areas where they cannot survive without getting going outside. I mean, for all those groups, those measures which are derogated from must be uh, approached, addressed, and mitigated. And at the moment, this is not happening. So you have spoken very powerfully to that um, special rapporteur. You, in fact, have said, how do people stay at home when they don't have homes? How mm -hmm. do people uh, uh, wash their hands when they do not have access to water? And you have called upon all governments just recently, and you have said even during states of emergency, the use of force remains guided by the principles Absolutely. of legality, necessity, yes. proportionality, mm -hmm. and precaution. Absolutely. And this, I think, is really the guiding principle, right, behind mm -hmm. the derogation that they uh -huh. have to be guided by principles of legality, necessity, proportionality, and precaution. So those are, I think, accountability uh -huh. principles and the way in which you have spoken to, to power. And yeah. so I want to take you back to the issue of violence against women. We see uh -huh. a spike in violence against women during the time uh -huh. of this epidemic. In fact, we see an epidemic of violence yeah. against women uh -huh. during this public health epidemic. So we see yeah. the ways in which this epidemic is not just limited to one sort. And uh -huh. just recently, Secretary General Guterres has said peace is not just the absence of war. And uh -huh. many women under lockdown um, face violence where they should be the most safest in their own homes. And today I appeal for peace in homes around the world. I urge all governments to put women's safety first as they respond to the pandemic. So. Uh -huh. So the fact that the homes, which are supposed to be safe havens, are not safety, uh, uh, safe spaces, are not the places where women, children, and other marginalized populations feel the safest in, is, I think, an important issue that is being brought to the forefront during this crisis. That these homes, these stay-at-home orders, sometimes are not always the safest. No, uh, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I remember uh, when those uh, first measures uh, were announced in, uh, in France or in the United States, including staying at home measures, you know, I, um, I was struck by what it meant for women who live with a violent partner. Uh, or for children who live with uh, violent parents, uh, you know, it, it, it must be hell. It must be hell. They can't leave. He uh, cannot leave either. Uh, they are uh, on top of each other. Um, it must be hell. Uh, and some governments 
are now taking measures to try to mitigate what it means for women and, and more generally for, uh, for families. Um, I'm glad that the Secretary General reminded governments of their obligations to uh, protect women against the implication of the measures that they have imposed upon us to protect the greatest number of us. But to do so cannot be done so that women die, you know. Um, so I don't think there are any easy, rapid uh, solution. But the first step must be awareness and understanding on the part of the policymakers that those uh, coronavirus measures are going to impact disproportionately and in a very serious fashion on women uh, living with a violent partner. And, and steps must be taken to protect them. Uh, they, must be, uh, they must have recourse to a range of uh, mechanisms. Police must be on the lookout. Police must be prepared to intervene uh, in those um, uh, situations. Other actors must be prepared to, to intervene. Shelters must be um, strengthened in terms of their safety and uh, mechanisms. In particular, at the moment, of course, we are so worried about uh, the epidemic. So it does mean that shelters for women in particular, uh, measures must be taken so that women can access those shelters and not be um, uh, the victims of the coronavirus for doing so. So there are a lot of things I think that can be done. It's not going to be a panacea, but um, it is important to put this on the policy agenda. It's important to acknowledge that um, there are uh, victims, not only to the virus, but also to the measures taken to protect us against the virus. So speaking of policy imperatives, Special Rapporteur, your own president, President Macron, recently canceled the debt to the African region. Uh -huh. And these yeah. are important and empathetic measures of foreign policy that are so important in a moment of crisis. And when you're mm -hmm. talking about the right to food, the right to water, the right to shelter, that yeah. some of these continents, especially the African region, is struggling and going to continue yeah. to struggle with mm -hmm. no end in sight. So having a more powerful states addressing this crisis both at a domestic level and at a foreign policy level is so important. Can you speak to that? Yes, absolutely. Um, I, um, uh, you know, special rapporteurs that are concerned with uh, debt um, and special rapporteurs that are particularly focusing on um, international issues of cooperation, uh, as well as the uh, Committee for Economic and Social Rights, have all pointed to the need of um, reviewing and rethinking international cooperation in view of the pandemic. The debt cancellation is a first step, but it's not going to be enough. I think um, I was reading today that uh, the, the majority, the vast majority, in fact, of the 
aid requested by all uh, UN agencies in order to respond effectively to the virus in the least uh, developed countries, the vast majority of the aid has not been uh, met yet. So most governments have not provided additional funds. It is the case that we are all confronting an economic recession or that we will be confronting an economic recession. Um, and therefore, in those uh, situations, solidarity internationally may not seem like uh, the most evident first choice. Uh, but I think it has been repeatedly shown that, first of all, the virus doesn't know any borders. So to fight the virus, we must have a global standpoint. And when a virus is raging in one country, it is very likely at some point to be raging elsewhere. Uh, secondly, we are, our economies are so interlinked than to imagine that we can uh, have uh, an economic um, boom or restart the economy in one country or in one region and let the rest of the world outside that uh, starting. Um, I think it's, uh, it's just a fallacy. So, um, you know, in addition to the principle of solidarity, I think there are very good reasons as to why we, the people of the world, should ask our governments not to be driven by selfishness and national considerations only, and that uh, a global standpoint and international standpoint, international corporations have never been more important. I should point out that I think um, Today or yesterday, the uh, General Assembly of the United Nations adopted uh, a very important statement that explain and insist upon that uh, the fact that we will not be free from the virus and the recession if we do not take a global standpoint. So that is such an important and powerful reminder that a global crisis challenges us to think in global solutions and the ways in which we remain inextricably interlinked. So on that moment, I am going to conclude this first phase of our conversation, reminding ourselves that in the course of human history, there comes a time when every generation has to face a challenge. And this is our challenge, the challenge that we are facing at this moment. And as our Surgeon General in the United States has said, this is our 9-11 moment. But I like to think of this also as our Nuremberg moment, as a time for solutions, as a time when the world comes together uh, to think of shared solutions to a shared problem. No longer, as you say, can we think of terms in, uh, in terms of limited and narrow populist, nationalist, hegemonic, tribalist um, uh, mindsets, that we really have to think of this in an international, global way. 
and the ways in which we have to think of it as interdisciplinary understanding of international transnational laws and the ways in which these challenges are not only interrelated but intersectional right and the ways in which these issues come together in terms of human rights of women, children, minorities, uh, migrant workers, LGBTQ populations, and the sick and the most vulnerable and the marginalized. So an understanding of the intersectional interrelatedness is so important at a time when we are looking at global solutions in a way that really eschews and challenges the hitherto nationalist, populist, xenophobic sentiments that have been to some extent pervasive around the world. So on that note, uh, Special Rapporteur, thank you very much as we go on to our next part of our conversation with our class on international women's human rights. We have three or four minutes more and my class of young leaders from around the world who constitute the, the citizenship, the membership of the International Women's Human Rights will be gathering from around the world. And what this moment has enabled us to do is to look at this again as a global issue. So my students who are now scattered all over the world will be zooming in from across the world, from different parts of the United States, from New Zealand, from the UK, from Ireland, from, um, from China, from Taiwan. And so it really shows that our borders are porous and our borders are being broken down in coming together as young leaders to meet with you, to present some of their own perspectives on this challenge, this particular challenge, but also other challenges that are going to continue to surface and going to continue to endure post-COVID.